From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way. From Indiana University's Maurer School of Law, welcome to One More Cold Call, an IU Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. We start each podcast off with a little bit of IU Maurer Law trivia and history. Did you know that we're about to mark our 180th year anniversary? The law school was founded in 1842, is the ninth oldest law school in the United States, and the first public law school in the Midwest. Today, we're talking about sports, entertainment, and law in Indianapolis, and we get to meet with Milt Thompson. Milt is a 1979 graduate from the law school. He is the CEO of Grand Slam, a sports, entertainment, and recreation management consulting firm, and is also counsel with the law firm of Bleak Dillon Crandall, where he practices sports, entertainment, and business law. A first-team All-American who was inducted into the Wittenberg University's Athletic Hall of Fame, Milt co-founded Playball Indiana, is a former certified contract advisor, uh, with the NBA Players Association. He hosted the weekly radio show Players Playing for Keeps on ESPN 950, was general counsel to the Pan American Games and served as president and interim director of Big Brothers. Deeply connected to the Indianapolis community, Milt is a board member of the Indianapolis Indiana Baseball Club and has served on the Indianapolis Capital Improvement Board, the Tourism Tomorrow Board of Visit Indy, the English Foundation, the Crown Hill Heritage Foundation, the Crown Hill Board of Managers, and the Indiana Skating Academy Board. And I've just scratched the surface there. There's a lot more. Milt is the former chair of the law school's Board of Visitors, and he was the first alum of color who was chair in 1997. He's a recipient of our Distinguished Service Award and an inductee of our Academy of Law Alumni Fellows, the very highest honor we can bestow upon a graduate. Milt, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure, Dean. Thank you so much for all you do for our school, our alumni, and the current students. Well, thanks, Milt. Hey, Milt, you've had an amazing career, and I, I feel that I really just didn't do that bio justice, but, but I wanted to jump right in on probably the most controversial, at least for some of our listeners. My understanding is that you, in 1976, were an all-team American, and then you were drafted for the Baltimore Orioles, and you gave that up, and you passed up that career to enroll in law school. You got to tell me why. Well, they would probably give up on me a lot sooner than I would give up on them. Um, I had some injuries, but more more importantly, um, um, if you're in the second phase of the draft, that means that you bypassed uh, being able to be drafted after your junior year of playing in college, which means that if you go on to rookie ball, uh, you will be the only college graduate amongst all the players as well as the coaches and managers. So uh, so instead of being called college, college boy with the handwriting on the wall, which means that they've invested a lot more in other players that it made much more sense to listen to my dad again, uh, which I wasn't want to do, but he suggested uh, law school to me. Um, so we began the, that venture towards, uh, towards law school. I, I've got to say, though, I just love that punchline. In Major League Baseball, better to go to Maurer School of Law. That's a great <laughs> Well, I'm not so sure Major Leagues were originally in the cards, but, uh, but there's some opportunity uh, uh, out there to be had. Well, you know, since we're talking about baseball, what is Playball Indiana and what was your involvement with it? Well, Playball Indiana uh, really came to pass in roughly 1983. I was serving as a Marion County Deputy Prosecuting Attorney uh, and was still uh, wanting to keep playing ball in the summer times uh, as a young uh, um, believer in that. And I uh, was uh, prosecuting young kids, uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, teenagers just barely old enough to to go to, and they're being disenfranchised anyway. Well, one day after uh, every court, I was uh, asked by a judge, uh, would you stay after, after court? Well, what does a young uh, lawyer do when a judge asks you to stay after court? You do what they ask you to do. Uh, former Judge Hesedens, uh, they were doing peace bonds or whatever they were at the time and child protective uh, cases. And he uh, calls me over and says, nope, uh, I've been keeping my eye on you and you, you were a pretty fair baseball player. and." You're doing a pretty good job uh, trying cases. Uh, and he flips down a, a Sports Illustrated in front of me. And the Sports Illustrated had on the front of it Arthur Ashe. And Arthur Ashe had started the NJTL programs. 
Uh, he says, well, why don't kids play baseball in Indianapolis anymore? They paved over everything and all they're doing is playing basketball. No kids are playing baseball. Why don't you do something about it? Uh, why don't I do something about it? Um, well, uh, one thing led to another. Uh, did my little research, went to Cincinnati, found out that they had 90 former Major League Baseball players participating in their amateur program there. Did the comparison here in Indianapolis, and there was one Major League Baseball player, uh, Rodney Scott, who I competed against, and actually were in the last rounds of tryouts uh, for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, and uh, and I discovered uh, that, uh, that these guys are much faster than I am when we had the final 40-yard uh, dash, and it was me and Rodney, only the two. And uh, next thing I look up, I see the bottom of his shoes. So I figured that uh, <laughs> I, I might uh, take a look, little more uh, carefully at uh, uh, helping others uh, do the things that I couldn't do. Uh, from that, we uh, uh, were able to raise a little money um, and started uh, uh, what at the time was Indiana Amateur Baseball Association, uh, converted to Playball Indiana and converted to the uh, Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities program uh, featured by uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, ironically, uh, in, in, in the earlier days, uh, we wanted to uh, uh, get some money. So we ended up going to the Indianapolis Indians and the Indianapolis Indians kind of turned us down. And ultimately, we were able to get our 501c3, get $10,000 worth of baseballs, which we had to sell. I said, it's kind of hard to buy insurance with baseballs, um, but we were able to figure out some other money to be able to get our, our leagues launched. Uh, we had uh, eight uh, teams that played in the summertime, changed some legislation with the IHSAA. Ironically, I'm on a foundation now raising money for it, but teams could not play on the same team together, nor could they use uniforms from the schools uh, in their summertime baseball. We were able to persuade them that it made sense for folks to be able to play together uh, because you don't play that many uh, uh, games in the wintertime or in April uh, when you're in high school in Indiana. Wow. And, and uh, does that still go on today? It still goes on today, 35 years uh, uh, later. And uh, in, in fact, um, there's a lot of developments that are going on continually. Our executive director, uh, we hired uh, some 30 some years, 30 years ago or so. Uh, has uh, turned it into the largest RBI program for boys and girls uh, baseball and softball uh, in the country, not being in a major league city. Wow, you've got to be proud of that. Very much so. Well, look, I want to. It was my baby for a while. Then it grew into uh, uh, an organization, uh, and then we were persuaded to put it into the mainstream and become an institution. So they don't need me very much. Um, so as an emeritus, I kind of. Uh, stand behind the scenes and, and, and watch these fine young people uh, do miracles with young people in, in, in harm's way. Yeah, I was going to say, what a way, though, to have an impact on a young person's life, though, to give them those opportunities. No, no doubt about that. You, talking about yourself, when you, when you came, you, know, you, you joined us in 1976 and graduated in 1979, what sort of things did you do at the law school? What sort of activities were you involved in? Oh, well, I was pretty much, uh, you name it, first of all, a little bit intimidating when you come there and there's uh, 13 black students and uh, roughly uh, nine to seven Hispanic students. Uh, we kind of hung together in addition to our regular study groups because we all decided that, uh, you know, getting here was one thing, getting out of here might be altogether different. Um, and the community of interest were different. Uh, if you remember 1979, the Baki case was uh, there and uh, we were part of groups uh, and the Black Lawsuits Association that this was, how do we demonstrate that we didn't get here by some trick or some affirmative action program, that we were literally competent enough to be able to, to, to do these things on our own. Uh, I've always thought and, and that through leadership roles, and I was a, in a leadership roles in my undergraduate school at Wittenberg University and ended up being on their board of directors and what have you, and, and uh, um, in their alumni association. So I'd always kind of been involved in those sort of things. So they're at the law school. Uh, I, uh, I got into uh, um, our uh, management of the Student Bar Association, and my third year was uh, elected as president of the Student Bar Association. The one real, real quick story about that. Uh, um, the, the, the association always borrowed money from the school just for their de minimus activities. Uh, and and uh, it was a volunteer organization. And uh, I said, this is not going to work. If I'm going to be head of this organization, we're going to have plenty of money. So in bet between the, the second year, second year, third year, that summer, uh, not only running a, 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 a consulting um, um, research firm, where it is we, we split fees with lawyers and we'd actually do their appellate briefs and we would get half that money. Uh, so we were, we were, I was being a businessman at that time, at least I thought I was. 
Um, so uh, I said, how are we going to really generate people's interest in Student Bar Association? And, you know, 30% of the folks might have been a member of Student Bar Association. Well, I decided to get a letter. We would get some T-shirts and uh, we do a little money that the law school put for us. And I would put this letter out to all incoming first year students. And they would get it in the summertime. They had no idea coming in first year students. They joined anything that they could that had a law firm on. We gave them a sticker, gave them a shirt, and our treasury was over. We paid the law school back. And that year, we did more things uh, in terms of funding. We had a, a library drive, and we sold books from, from the old librarian that we had there. We had tax return services. So we were an enterprising group. Uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I tell, um, at the time, our, 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 our first or second year representative, and we tease all the time, uh, about that, but uh, uh, Mayor Joe Hogsett was in that role when we were there in the law school. He never lets lets it, lets me live it down. Um, but I see you're the politician, sir. I, I had no desire uh, to, to to do that. But uh, anyway, yes, Student Bar Association. I was uh, uh, paired with uh, Judge Mathias, and we were the National Moot Court team, uh, and uh, and fared quite quite well. We uh, beat some teams that probably no one would expect us uh, to beat in terms of advocacy. Wow. I, you know, Milt, I'm going to regret this interview because I think once this goes live, um, Heather Jen, who's the current SBA president, who's, who's fabulous, I got a feeling she's going to be calling me up asking me why she's not allowed to send out a letter to the new incoming students uh, for <laughs> SBA fees. But uh, well, we, we, we didn't have rules at the time, so uh, we made them up. Uh, wow, that's fabulous. A lot, that's of, a lot of things have, have changed uh, uh, since then. If you, were to, if you were to look back at your law school experience, was there sort of one moment or one activity or one class that really sort of stood out for you as is leaving an imprint or something that was real meaningful? Well, I was speaking at the uh, uh, National Business Institute yesterday um, uh, on now uh, virtually, um, but on sophisticated LLCs and talking to um, big time lawyers and accountants uh, about the mistakes that they make in formation and entity selection. And one of the stories I told them was about first year contracts. We had Raleigh Stanger, who was the, the, uh, the Kingsfield prototype, come from Harvard and he was teaching first year contracts. And he was elderly then. And uh, we were we were all nervous about, you know, whether or not we are going to be able to be called on and can we not be called on? And he was fairly gruff about it. And uh, so we go through those kind of rituals. And then one day we're in class and he decides he's going to uh, talk to us about uh, contracts and says, uh, what's this case about? And uh, so, Mr. Thompson, uh, it's about offer. Um, Ms. Richards, uh, this is about acceptance. He goes around, Mr. Reynolds, what's this case about? It's about uh, uh, consideration. It's all oh, it's about peppercorn. He does this for 45 minutes, goes around the entire piece of class. And we're just like, what is he talking about? And he leans over and says, I have the strangest suspicion that no one in this class has any idea what this case is about, except for me. Would you like me to tell you what this case is about? The bell's about to ring and whatever. And so, well, sure, tell us what about. He says, this case is about dirt. It was. It was about a guy dumping dirt on one side of the fence or the other and whether or not someone had a contractual obligation to remove it and whose responsibility would be. He says, you guys are thinking about all the the, the stuff of legalese and, and horn books and everything that you're going to read. And then you look at it and you're like, you start looking at real live circumstances. And that's really early on in law school. In uh, torts was a similar thing. Thing We had uh, Mr. Hershoff and uh, he had come from the Calabrese theory of, of tort. And we all had Prosser tort books on our, in front of our deal. He walks in and says, get rid of those. That's not what that's what that, that's what tort's all about. <laughs> it's about it's the calibration theory, and everyone said, "Oh wow, well, we just spent all this money on this process. We thought we were going to get ahead of the question." So we learned really early on that the law truly is a seamless web, and that there ultimately will be a day comes where it is you're going to have to figure that part out. Other than issue identification, you're going to find your way. I mean, is it really in contract or is it in tort? Uh, you 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 figure that out. Well, is it six year statute limitations going to work for us, or is it two year? How do we how do we make this fit our fit our patterns? So early on, I got some of those learning stuff. Clearly, uh, one other learning I got was more of an informal kind of way, and and this has impacted me long term. As I said, the the uh, uh, the Black Law Students Association and, and the Hispanic Law Students Association, we would kind of peel off on our groups. There was a uh, large Afro wearing um, Hispanic guy from Gary, Indiana. And we would we'd stay out. He was a guitar player. He went to undergrad at IU. He knew what was going on. 
there at IU. So we would talk, we'd have some late night sessions and be discussing and, and what, or ideals. What am I going to do? I'm going to go back to uh, Indianapolis, wherever I go, I'm going to have some impact in helping people and serve people. So I'm going to do the same thing, go back to Gary and do those sort of things. Well, it turns out that his older brother uh, went to Southern California and asked him to come out there and practice with him. Next thing you know, uh, he becomes a U.S. attorney and he's and he's prosecuting, uh, uh, you know, the story, um, prosecuting uh, uh, warlords and what have you and becomes a, um, um, a, a judge uh, under uh, Obama and and uh, was presiding over the uh, Trump University cases. Uh, our classmate Gonzalo Curiel. Uh, interestingly enough, if you look at our Academy of Law Alumni Fellows, I know you were going to talk about that earlier. I was inducted along with Mickey Maurer um, that night, uh, his, his little more special status. And he was he was delighted to hear my uh, my story uh, in, in my own speech. And he comes up afterwards and he says, Mickey, he, he says, Milt, I, I knew you were one of our most outstanding graduates, but I had no idea that was your story, how you kind of did these things despite the challenge that you had. I said, Mickey, please, please, please don't do that, man. Your name is on the side of the building. Uh, and he simply responded, says, Milt, that uh, I just bought that. I said, okay, the next time I have an extra $35 million laying around, maybe I'll buy you out. That's... Uh, but if, if you think about our class in 1979, uh, I think there are four members in our Academy of Law Alumni Fellows, two Hispanics, one woman, and one African-American. Uh, if that speaks to an earlier time in our history uh, in 79, when there wasn't that much diversity, um, women had gotten up to over 40% in terms of representation, but not so much uh, when it came to uh, uh, other people of color. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that in two ways, right? One, I always think uh, classes are like vintages, and there's just some classes that just have amazing people, and, and 79 certainly was, was like that. There was a number of others, but you're also right. It was, it was a different time and a lot of challenges. To our listeners, can you talk a little bit of, you know, like graduating in 1979 is not the same as graduating in 2021. You were an accomplished law student. You were on the National Moot Court team. You were the president of the Student Bar Association. Um, how was it like when you first graduated, when you first started practicing law? Well, I was re being recruited by several firms, some, some of whom outside of the state, um, literally to, to Wall Street and, and uh, Chicago firms primarily uh, were interested in uh, young uh, black law students. And, uh, and, um, but my dad had a business here in Indianapolis, and he was the one who suggested I go to law school anyway, uh, back in my college days. And he said that you'll be better off doing that. And you'll never make money in sports. So why are you going to go play sports? Incidentally, um, becoming an All-American, my dad uh, God bless his soul, never, ever watched uh, me um, play a baseball game. Um, but when I delivered the graduation speech for our law class, he was front row and center. Uh, and the same at college and, and, and now on the, on the commencement circle, um, he would be uh, very proud uh, of some of those accomplishments. Um, and, but I did uh, become an agent at one time and represented athletes and, and be able to got some big checks. So I brought him a check. I said, I made money in sports, dad. Uh, he, was, he was proud of that part of make, making money in sports. But it, it was clearly different in 1979. Uh, so I decided that uh, I would uh, just interview for the three large law firms in, in Indianapolis. That made, made sense to me. I was eminently qualified, uh, as was a lot of my peers, obviously. And they had all interviewed and they were saying, well, well I just got an offer from those, uh, from those uh, law firms. Um, well, I interviewed with all, all three of the big ones. And, uh, and ironically, I started getting rejection letters, some of them quite lengthy and was kind of stunned by that and was really feeling pretty low and actually feeling pretty bitter until I discovered that in the three big firms in 1979, there were no um, partners of color in any of them, no associates of color in any of them, no paralegals of color in any of them, um, no secretaries of color in any of them, not even the high school runners running paperwork between the courthouse and the offices. Ironically, the person who interviewed me at one of those law firms happened to be become a longtime advocate because he told me uh, to my face that I was the best interview that they had had at that firm bar none, but they weren't uh, quote unquote culturally prepared at that time to make uh, extend that offer. So um, I decided from that point on taking a job at a, uh, a small percentage of the salary. Um, uh, in fact, in 1979, my salary going to the Marion County Prosecutor's Office was $13,500 and it moved up to $18,000 once I passed the bar exam. Um, so I advanced pretty quickly there, became the youngest supervisor on staff and ultimately becoming chief trial counsel for the 
for uh, the prosecutor, uh, Gold Smith, and, and uh, then uh, from there uh, advanced my uh, my career uh, from trying cases, uh, uh, never lost a, a case or a jury trial, because um, um, I got smart about uh, prosecutorial discretion. Make sure you pick the cases that you can win, right? Um, but uh, uh, we uh, 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 took off from there after seeing that that might not be um, the real career path and trying cases, hurry up and wait was really not my style. Uh, I had started a sports agency, uh, uh, Moonlighting, uh, and uh, began to represent some former IU players off the 1981 uh, class. Um, uh, thinking back in those days, um, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Ferguson was uh, Bobby Knight's next door neighbor and, and uh, our, our great, uh, um, one of our great uh, chair people in, in our law school professors. Um, they, uh, uh, they decided that uh, uh, it was time for Mr. Ferguson to go on to uh, Cook Medical, uh, and they wanted to know who was going to be the next guy representing our players. And so I represented off of that 81 team, uh, Ray Tolbert and uh, Jimmy Thomas, Isaiah Thomas's mom wanted me very much to represent them as we were out there watching them play the championship game out in Philadelphia. Um, so that became part of it, uh, became a majority counsel in the United States Senate. I uh, was asked to come down to our law school and I would come down there and I would uh, teach trial techniques as an adjunct. Um, I was uh, a attorney in residence teaching negotiation classes down there at our law school uh, and then got a call from uh, Jim Morris, who was the head of the Lilly Endowment at the time, and Mayor Hudnut. And they uh, said that they were making an advance towards having the Pan American Games in 1987 and asked if Mark Miles and I would uh, do a little shuttle diplomacy to persuade the folks in Kapaba, the uh, Western Hemisphere's Basketball Association, to move from uh, round robin play to final gold medal play so we could predict for television's sake um, who would be in the gold medal game on that Sunday afternoon in, in late August. So, um, uh, and, and we were able to do that, lots of stories along the way, but we were able to do that uh, and thereafter became the uh, general counsel and vice president of corporate development. Uh, put that on one card and what that what does that mean to me and my young family? Um, make a little bit more money, but uh, you got a lot more responsibility. But I learned uh, my, my tact in international diplomacy and negotiations and all of that from there and uh, really uh, upped my game, if you will, in terms of my knowledge base. Well, I, I, I've got to get into the Pan Am Games because that just seems fascinating. But let me just make sure I've got this right, because this is a pretty this is a pretty time period. So 1979, you graduate. A, you're a rock star in the prosecutor's office. You get to give the commencement address at, as the, the student speaker at graduation. Um, your dad is, is proud because you're, 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 you're making money as a lawyer, not just in sports. And then you start doing the sports stuff on the side. And with, with eight years, you're, well, seven years, uh, you're, you're now general counsel to Pan Am Games. That, that's amazing, Milt. That's, that's quite, a, quite a trajectory. Yes, it was pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, I had to put my sports agency on hold and uh, license it to another uh, law school grad in our class. Uh, Lawrence Mayberry became a part of the Grand Slam mix at that time. And uh, uh, um, so that became three years of my absence from that, um, which I had to kind of grow back during that period of time, but I wouldn't change the experiences um, that I had, at least on an international basis. And part of that experience other than negotiating and learning sponsorships, meeting with folks like uh, um, um, Mr. Ubrough and, and learning from them about the mistakes that they were making in California that we couldn't make here with a lot less money, um, being able to uh, devote a licensing program that couldn't lose money also, uh, learning premium process premium uh, uh, processes between sponsorships and licensees that they still use in the Olympic movement today to negotiate between sponsors and licensees. I uh, put oh, antitrust lawyers around town here and we were able to solve that problem contractually in removing uh, the margins from royalties so that the licensees could actually do offshore work with the, with the, with the sponsors. Um, for example, where McDonald's had the, the sponsorship and they would give an offshore hat with Sam the Eagle on it um, if you bought a Happy Meal. Um, so tell that to the hat vendor who's got Sam Eagle hats for 35 bucks out in the parking lot. Um, so there are a lot of lawsuits that were pending and um, materials on the docks. So when I went out and met with Mr. Uberoff and saw all these docks, I said, oh, my goodness, we would, certainly wouldn't be able to buy off uh, all of those all of those suits. Uh, but during that time, if you really think about it from a diplomatic point of view, um, we had uh, we were kind of a strange relationships with Cuba. Um, the diplomatic pouches were being held up in Washington, D.C. and also at the Swiss intersection. 
uh, intersection in 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 uh, uh, in, in, in Cuba, uh, and Elliot Abrams at the time came, and and when we were going to go under the aegis of the International Olympic Committee to go to Cuba and, and negotiate their presence, uh, even some brown bag diplomacy where people went to jail in Salt Lake City, but literally um, kind of cash transactions um, with uh, with Telgo Mundo to have them to be sure that they were going to preserve. Uh, we uh, take a a uh, 13 person delegation, which was initially going to be 26. And they said, no, this is going to be the 25th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs invasion of your trip down there. In uh, so we really don't want you to go at all. But if you're insisting on going, you're going to do these kind of protocols. And this was before the Iron Curtain fell. Um, so there were 13 of us and 13 members of the national press on a 1943 DC-3 uh, and uh, flying out of, out of Miami. And, uh, and the Cuban nationals, if you see him, you kill him for us, you kill him for us. Um, so it, uh, it was a very, very intense time and moment. And, uh, and, uh, and they, they tell us things not to do, don't give up your passports. You fly into their airport and Russian MiGs and, and uh, are all lining the street. And, uh, you know, first thing they take is your passport, right? So, um, you know, an 11-day venture, and then a, uh, we knew that on our last night there, there might be the chance for us to encounter uh, um, President Castro, and we did. And uh, it kind of goes down in history that the 90-minute meeting in the middle of the night was largely a, a dialogue between he and me on um, a, um, a trade embargo issue, although we couldn't talk about trade embargo. It had to do, guess what, sir, had to do about aluminum baseball bats and why their players, we had to use aluminum baseball bats versus getting the good wood ash from Southern Indiana. And, uh, and by the time we, I, I was dubbed um, comrade sportsman. <laughs> wow. some dialogue. So he turns to me, comrade sportsman, who are the best pitchers in Major League Baseball? I'm thinking I'm going to get rid of my question. We're only supposed to answer questions that he asked. We can't answer ask questions. So he turns to me and it says, comrade sportsman, uh, who are the best players? I go, oh, Major League Baseball, I got over that one. Roger Clemens and Fernando Valenzuela. And he touches touches Alberto Monterreno, the four, former 400-800 meter champ, uh, who was my, I was his liaison for their visit here after we were persuaded them to visit. Um, and and uh, uh, he says, no, he's not Cuban. He's, he's not Mexican. They were concerned about defections, obviously, at that time. And uh, then uh, 10 minutes later, he turns to me, comrade sportsman, why don't your Major League Baseball players use aluminum baseball bats? And, oh, my God. My, our advisor said, don't worry about it. Milk. That'll never come up. It'll never come up. There it is with me sitting directly across from him. And it comes up. So delegation, they're looking at me. Larry Conrad, former Secretary of State, is on our delegation. The Chief of Police of ours and Pablo Bacchus, our State Department person. Mark Miles, Sandy Knapp. Uh, I mean, you know, robust group. Tom Eggleston, the other general counsel. And, and they're so, what is Milk going to say? And they're just like, they're dumbfounded. So I use my prosecutorial skills. So maybe I'm glad I didn't get a lot of experience in one of the large law firms at the time. Because so I turned and said, Mr. President, my opinion, the biggest difference between Major League Baseball is – is the advent of the of the artificial baseball surface. And with additional velocity off of an aluminum baseball bat with our very strong and macho players would make it a dangerous sport. Ha, I dug deep for that one, Dean. And uh, he had stroked his beard, looked away and and uh, had, to, had to go. So maybe at another podcast, we'll talk more specifically about that trip and the return trip in 1991 after the, after the uh, wall had fallen and the change in diplomacy and the change in interest and I was literally there for a commercial ad advisor, but there was no commercial uh, advising going on. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of stories in that. But yeah, that that became a kind of a hallmark uh, uh, and began, you know, a lot of the work that I do um, overseas, uh, literally right now in Tanzania, uh, Rwanda and others have to do with my uh, ability to maneuver and, and negotiate deals uh, learned from those earlier on experiences. And was that, that was, so the second trip was 91. This first trip was, that was 85, 86? Yes, 86. 86, wow. Can you give the listeners just some sense? Because I think some people may forget just how big the Pan Am Games was. Like this was, this was the major international sporting event of its time, wasn't it? Or Yes, uh, we, we were, we were the uh, uh, same scope and size of an Olympic Games yeah. um, with a, a quarter of its revenue if that much. So we didn't want to have white elephants here in Indianapolis. So we had to make sure that we had a business model that was sustainable. Um, a lot of the venues were in place, but we had to negotiate for a lot of different th of the venues. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I often tell the story negotiating for old Market Square Arena. Uh, in 1986, we were negotiating with that and negotiating with that with uh, 
uh, some folks there at the Marcus Arena, and then uh, and we're, we're finally almost getting done with our, our negotiations, and and someone from the State Department uh, says, "Well, do you have terrorism insurance?" Terrorism insurance. What is that? Um, because if you remember, Marcus Square Arena was built over the street, over the street, and underneath was a parking garage, which was a kind of open air. You could just like walk through there, or you could even drive your car in there, and maybe have a car bomb. Well, we didn't, 1986, we weren't talking about terrorism. Yeah. It was not even on our, not even on our vocabulary. And here they're talking. I said, "What is, what is that insurance?" and can we get it? <laughs> so we learned about uh, getting that in, in some firms up in Fort Wayne, actually, which ultimately um, had me on the American States Insurance Company board and spun off by Lincoln National out of there and uh, on a private flight out to, um, to uh, Goldman Sachs and sit in their conference room until the close of the market. And we opened up the cash bids and Safeco purchased uh, uh, that year, same year in 1997, where I had several other uh, market transactions, including being our uh, chairman of our uh, board of visitors, as well as our alumni president of our alumni association. Wow! So this is this is eighty six, eighty seven. You're you're seven years out of uh, law school. You're negotiating right. deals in Cuba. You're you're negotiating massive terrorism insurance contracts in order to <laughs> to put on one of the largest sporting events of its time. Um, that's just uh, that that's amazing. Well, you mentioned 1997, and uh, you were the chair of our board of visitors uh, that that year. Um, I think you were the first uh, person of color to serve in that role. Um, but you were also the chair of a number of other boards at the time. Can, can you tell me, uh, so we're, you know, this is a little yeah, further yeah. in. Can you talk to me about what you were doing in, in the sure. 90s? 1997 was a remarkable year. And I also mentioned, uh, I was also on the water company board um, where the chairman of the board at that time was Jim Morris. Um, and, and, uh, and the water company board went through a purchase from NYSource. Uh, and then they went to purchase uh, Columbia uh, Electric, which was bigger than them. Uh, and uh, so they had the Anti-Holding Company Act whereby they had to divest of the water company. Um, private company, I think, always has run better than, than, than uh, a government program. But all that said, uh, at the time, uh, the mayor of Indianapolis exercised a, a old clause that they had first right to be able to purchase it. And so they purchased it with all stock. So I went to a cash transaction, a stock transaction, then the Indianapolis Indians Board of Directors, which I was on um, before they could create the uh, uh, Victory Field. Um, they uh, they went they began their their stock redemption program to try to get the subchapter S status in order for us to be able to uh, leverage uh, uh, um, the value and that never happened with the value of the stock uh, when Sky Well, that same year, uh, I happened to be in in my uh, third year uh, as a federal court appointee to the Indianapolis Foundation Trust, uh, and 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 that just took the final three years of the former Governor Ed Welsh's term, who had fallen ill. And uh, Judge Sarah Evans Barker uh, called me, and I was kind of warned that she may ask you to do something. If a federal judge calls you, you know, you probably might want to consider whatever they ask. And so uh, after leaving the prosecutor's office, she had wanted me to come to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, so she was going to get me one way or another. So she uh, said, uh, um, we'd like to name you to be a trustee for the Indianapolis Foundation, roughly, uh, roughly a, a $75 million um, underlying uh, foundation, all based on trusts. Um, uh, and, and in, in that third year, you, because you're six-year term, at the end of your six-year term, you become the chairman of the board. So there I am in my third year, chairman of the board of this prestigious Indianapolis Foundation Trust. Um, and uh, Dan Ephraimson, who was the other um, uh, federal court uh, uh, appointee, uh, he meets me up at uh, Daddy Jack's in Indianapolis and says, Milk, uh, I'm dying of can't, stomach cancer like my, like my dad and some others, and, and, uh, and I want to leave $100 million dollars. Uh, to um, to Indianapolis Foundation, but not to the trust. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to leave it, but not to the trust? He said, well, I want to leave it to a corporate form. Um, so, so I'm leaving that up to you to do in order, in order to get this $100 million. Well, there's 100 million reasons why to do this merger, right? So with a lot of shuttle diplomacy between here and Hamlin County, behind the scenes, and, uh, and uh, who's got the power? Who owns the money? Is it going to be a takeover? Is it going to be a merger? So we went through all of those sort of things, and, and lo and behold, ultimately is the spin out called Central Indiana Community Foundation, uh, of which I led as its inaugural chairman um, for a year and a half until we can kind of get governance kind of organized. And here's a come out years later, 
um, we've uh, done, done pretty well. And it's uh, uh, closer to 800 million in the combination. So we think that the, the experiment uh, has, has kind of worked. Uh, in that period of time, I also did the merger. I became chairman of the board of the Big Brothers organization. When the long-term executive director uh, left to go to the national, uh, he asked if I might come in and, and serve as an interim director. Um, so I thought it was a four-month engagement to kind of look through the books and make sure that we were audited appropriately. Uh, and they'd never done any uh, business because they grew up culturally different from the Big Sisters organization. Uh, but two and a half years later, we became Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Central Indiana. Um, so I uh, was heavily engaged in that. Uh, also became the interim director of uh, the uh, Family Advocacy Center, and they kind of changed their mission and and uh, and when I took some of the programs and everybody sees me, they see me coming, they'll go running because they think they're going to lose their job or something. They're going to get riffed. But anyway, we, we, just, we, we took the money. And why don't we send this to a, an organization um, that actually does uh, uh, domestic violence better than you? And therefore, conversation with our, our colleague, Ann Delaney. Uh, and uh, Ann Delaney at the Julian Center at the time and, and created that and made sure that we had a transition a program and staff from the Family Advocacy Center so they get back to doing their kind of mission work. Uh, so that was in 79. I was president of the Alumni Association uh, and uh, therein uh, being an ex-fiscal member of the Board of Visitors. And the, the gentleman uh, who uh, uh, interviewed me and told me that I had that great interview uh, uh, several odd years before is the one who uh, uh, was on the nominations committee and uh, made sure that I got paid back by being the chairman of the board of the Board of Visitors. Um, he had a couple of other uh, paybacks over the career um, that uh, uh, that not seen me being a big partner in a big law firm uh, right out of, out of law school, um, but that I uh, uh, didn't become bitter. I became better and kind of guided my own path. So a lot of those things happened in 1979. And, and uh, some people shudder the thought that I could even uh, live that long. <laughs> I'm going to say, though, what a path, though, right? So you, 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 you didn't take the, the well-trampled role of going into the large private firm, but a prosecutor, your owner of your own sports management firm, uh, general counsel for Pan Am, uh, the chair of, of so many different boards that have had such a major influence in Indiana and, and Indianapolis, um, you know, looking back, what, a, what an amazing career. And most of this that's occurring in the 1990s, I'm assuming this is in your late 30s, early 40s, right? So you're Correct. still- Late you're 30s, in early 40s, right. Wow. Um, you know, and I uh, um, uh, was married to, at the time, I, another uh, um, law school grad. And, and, uh, and ultimately, our, our child has become a law school grad of, of Maurer and uh, had a nephew in between there is a law school grad of, at Maurer. Um, so those are some, uh, some remarkable times. Well, I, an amazing career. You know, looking back on your career, you've served in so many roles. You've volunteered for so many organizations. Um, if I was to make you pick as to, you know, one or two that was most meaningful or most rewarding or most sculpted you, uh, which one would you, uh, which, which well, one would you say? Well, I would say two. Um, one, because I was uh, at, its, uh, at its birth, and that was uh, the Indiana Amateur Baseball Association, ultimately converted into Playball Indiana, and became the largest uh, uh, playing, uh, uh, reviving baseball in the inner cities for the Major League Baseball program. So that became my baby at the time. Um, uh, and from that, I was negotiating contracts for baseball players before, uh, uh, and uh, they collectively weren't making as much as I was even making out of the prosecutor's office. So, um, so but, 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 but again, to understand that I really kind of want to do this sports agency kind of thing. And that led to a career at the college and high school, coaches on the board of directors. Uh, next thing you know, kids are getting drafted and they're saying, I'm going plea bargain, contract, offer acceptance, go to jail, um, offer acceptance, make some money, um, developing a television presence, having television shows that I produced myself and, and creating those things and radio shows and, and sports business and uh, having some of a cue and cachet for some of that. But the other is clearly the community foundation. Uh, when you can um, be on the ground floor of uh, uh, of uh, um, having a person say, I'm going to give $100 million, but not until you do this. And that took a lot of challenges. Uh, uh, probate courts had to say that we, if you're going to do that, then, you know, can, can we give you the appreciation from the corpus of the of the information? Uh, then we had to change for two share responsibility as a trustee. You pretty much just waited until people died and gave you money. Right. Well, all of a sudden, you've got to have staff and you've got to develop money. And there's maybe a four-person staff 
uh, at the time. And, and then we had to hire an executive director, and that's how we hired Brian Payne. Uh, and uh, before you know it, uh, George Sweet on the other side was saying, well, why aren't we a billion-dollar foundation? And, uh, well, uh, we're, 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 we're getting there 20-some-odd uh, years later. So 97 kind of uh, launched me uh, into uh, uh, kind of creating opportunities and having them spread so that other people are helped. That's my whole uh, my whole shtick, Dean, is how to help others and how do I uh, utilize the uh, amazing gifts and talents that I've been giving, but also the fantastic education that I have. A lot of these things couldn't go. Uh, I, I, one real quick story about my daughter, uh, who's remarkable. She should be on your podcast more so than me. Um, she has her law degree, of course, and she also has her PhD, and she is in the surgery department at Johns Hopkins and, and is in, really in charge of a lot of the major, major uh, research that goes on. But uh, um, she was at like a lot of students who were uh, students, students of uh, children of two lawyers, you know, last thing they ever want to do. In almost all cases, they always end up going to law school. I didn't think my daughter was going to go to law school after she'd gone to Pepperdine and come back and, and, uh, and uh, was just not, just not connected on all, all levels. And, and, and then I see some LSAT um, books on the stairway and I see her back in my library reading my old philosophy books. And I said, what's going on here? So she, on her own initiative, um, piped up, finished her degree, and uh, tried to apply to law school. Well, at, at our alma mater, she got waitlisted. <laughs> so her mom and I, she mom flies in from, from Denver, and it's a summer day. And so we go down to meet with Dean Robel, and, and, and Susan was uh, actually teaching at the school. And I had done a lot of service for the school, and uh, we'd given a sizable gift in the capital campaign. And, and, uh, uh, and, and we're going, aren't we legacies here? Our daughter's waitlisted. What's it take to get off the waitlist? She says, oh, well, Dean Motley's having hip surgery, and he didn't get back to you. And, and she said, don't worry about this. So before you know it, um, she was no longer waitlisted and was clearly uh, capable and able and was enrolled and uh, uh, matriculated and, and ultimately graduated. And as you say, what a fabulous career she has had too. So that's, uh, you've got to, Very you've got to be proud there. Milt, I've got to ask you, what does the future hold for you? What, what are you, uh, like, what strikes me, it strikes me so dramatically as you talk about this is how you've had this fabulous career in business and in, in, uh, in sports and, and, um, well, international diplomacy, and yet law keeps sort of popping up right in the background, and you're using that law degree to move along either in the way you're doing good or the way you're giving back to the community in different ways. L love to hear what's what what the future holds for you. What, well, Dean, I'm still about? practicing law, um, doing some uh, international pieces and projects, as I say, in, in, in Tanzania. I was in Rwanda uh, not too long ago. Uh, I uh, represent a lot of entrepreneurs because my athletes, they got old at age 35 and decided they wanted to get into business. When I was counseling them, they did not want to get into business. Uh, they want to get into business, but I wouldn't let them get into business. So now they've got a lot of money. They're still young. They want to get into business. So we began uh, a series of entrepreneurial services, which led in this day of intellectual property and software and growth um, to me to really kind of master ring fencing with a lot of the patent lawyers. Patent lawyers can prosecute patents very well. Um, they hire me to help them ring fence for their fence so they can upgrade, take advantage of advancements. Numerous clients that are in that space right now. Uh, I, I, I'm a consultant with lots of nonprofit organizations in terms of getting them uh, grant worthy and, and prepared uh, for their futures and doing board development. Uh, I'm not very smart, but uh, I, I know where a lot of the dead bodies are, if you will. Um, I'm a dot connector, if you is what I'm kind of known as. Um, so by putting these things together, people with organizations, people with and they all have some legal uh, work. So if there's legal work and it's purely the right side of the legal work, um, I have a, a partner in the firm who has, uh, who I was just teasing the other day because we've got a lot of work going on with a lot of various projects and a lot of clients. Uh, was kind of like I've been, been like I've been kind of mentoring him along, you know, and and. Well, that's been 12 years of mentorship. That means he's been practicing law for 25 years. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't need to mentor that guy anymore. He knows what's going on. Here's the project. You go, man. You tell me when you need my help. Uh, so we've been uh, we've we've been managing to uh, keep a good cadre of uh, innovative uh, products and clients um, that are we're helping them grow. 
um, this mergers and acquisitions, selling out of proposition, sold one of our for-profit companies that has a nice not-for-profit spinoff, um, but uh, we, we sold their company uh, for several million dollars, 80% of it, and the family maintains some of that value, but they've put their energy into their nonprofit that is, is highly regarded in the state uh, through Next Level Jobs for getting certificate programs for those who don't have those certificates, including Homeland Security and and uh, CompTIA and A plus and other certificate programs. Um, a, a new laser technology that was just used to uh, get Patrick Mahomes to play back in uh, the Super Bowl last year and to get Kevin Durant uh, to playing. Well, uh, through some connections, a former coach that I represented, um, they came to town and there's a local group for whom I'm negotiating right now, a master license for them to be able to have these territories for this device into all of their, uh, uh, their uh, uh, therapeutic spaces. Uh, so th that's just a couple examples of the kind of projects that we're in. Um, we have uh, developed a personal relationship with the new president of Tanzania, a woman, uh, and um, and uh, we were on the on the brink of having her on visit her visit coming up uh, in, in September to speak at the UN. Uh, we were about to have a state visit here in conjunction with uh, the, uh, the Purdue Lab in Arusha. Uh, and the only place that you can get a Purdue uh, a, a degree outside of West Lafayette is in northern Tanzania in Arusha. Uh, and uh, working on a project with, uh, with uh, Gilead and, and Merck and some others to be able to get their life-saving drugs from uh, India that are currently manufactured in India and through South Africa and then try to get to Eastern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so uh, we've got other projects there in, in mining and, and gold and, and, and Tanzanite and others. Um, that, uh, and plus, we're doing a documentary there. Our group is doing a documentary there, and um, Peter Greenberg uh, is uh, doing a documentary on the new president. And we made that introduction. Uh, and uh, we, in our documentary, uh, our producer is Haley Jackson uh, from, from the Cameron uh, line of work. So she's hired to do that. And they had to get out of there right before COVID and the crew, but they the crew went back just two months ago and they're bringing back and our, our Tanzanian friend who's a Charlotte banker and who had worked with me on lots of projects here in the solar world. Um, they, they all, we were here on Labor Day uh, trying to preparing for this visit that would become a state visit. Um, but fortunately, we can do our work because she cannot come uh, here in, in, uh, in September. So we've got more time to work on the program. So those are the kind of things we're doing. Uh, I'm also, uh, I thought they were going to dust me off uh, from uh, being in media, if you will. But uh, um, I was persuaded by some friends and others uh, to uh, start another um, TV show. And it's off of the old radio show, uh, Playing for Keeps the Business of Sports. So we'll be beginning sometime in October, um, the new show, Playing for Keeps, but it'll be for television. It'll be on uh, Channel 40, um, but it will also be podcast and streamed. And we've uh, nailed our first, uh, first uh, half sponsorship. So it looks like I'll have to end up uh, um, looking like a lawyer on TV and uh, going in and having uh, uh, some interviews with where are they now and some of the various people with whom I've represented and or worked. That's fabulous. You're keeping busy. You're keeping busy. Well, well Milt, I, our time's up. I wanted to thank you for spending time with us, uh, not only for spending time on the podcast, but being such a role model for our, and a trailblazer for our students. Um, I, um, you know, it's, I'm really proud to have you as an alum of our law school, and I, I'm really glad that you were willing to take some time out to talk to me this afternoon. Well, I know that you had asked me because of some recent news about award and I'm about to receive. I learned today that they're going to have a public announcement out for that before too long. So um, not sure when your podcast will be, but uh, um, we'll, we'll, we'll allow you to have more formal uh, um, uh, notices of it. Uh, it's a very flattering uh, award and in, in looking at the um, predecessors uh, to that award uh, um, uh, is uh, it's daunting. Uh, and quite, quite frankly, humbling. Well, I suspect um, that our podcast probably won't go live until after that's become a public announcement. So let's uh, let's okay. announce it here. What, what is the award, Mel? Yeah, um, the the uh, um, Charles Whistler Award, um, which goes to a uh, community uh, pioneer leader uh, in the business and public sectors, and bringing those folks together. And when I look at the folks that have have uh, been awarded that, um, um, I, I truly am humbled. Um, to have been selected, and uh, they'll have a award uh, ceremony uh, in early December, and and I'm hopeful that my uh, uh, daughter and son-in-law they've already inquired when is that going to be, um, so maybe they'll make their way uh, from their beautiful home in northern uh, uh, 
uh, Maryland, Delaware, uh, for that for that uh, that award ceremony. Well, I hope they make it. That is such well deserved recognition. The as you say, I you know those who have received the Whistler Award have just been uh, fantastic and and uh, amazing people. But to be honest, uh, you're you well deserve it. And you're, it's, uh, it's great to hear that you're being recognized for all your contributions to the city and the state. I, it's, uh, um, I, I feel like we just scratched the surface. So I'm, I'm, but I, I'm, I'm glad I was able to spend a little time and I'm glad we were able to memorialize this on the podcast so that other alums and students are able to hear it. Speaking of awards, um, I was the inaugural um, selection for the distinguished service award at our law mm-hmm. school. And uh, I recall that very, very much. Um, and uh, when uh, Dean Amon um, made that presentation up in Indianapolis at the Columbia Club, um, that brought tears to my eyes because it was not just about practicing law. It was about um, serving um, our fellow man and woman. And uh, that was meaningful to me. Um, that's what my parents taught me. And that's what I figured that I would continue to live out. Yeah, you know, it's 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 nice you mentioned that uh, you know when i first started uh, the deanship uh, just about 8 years ago i think you were one of the earlier people that i met uh, when i first arrived and i remember i i was flipping back through some of the old uh, uh, alumni magazines uh, from the 80s just to try to get a, a bit of the history and uh, what struck me is how long people like you have been uh, uh, committed to the school and, and keep coming back and, and keep doing things. And my gosh, that's a tremendous testament to, uh, to you and also to the alum of the law school. Uh, it's just, frankly, it's remarkable. Not many schools have the kind of alum that we, we have that stay involved at such a high level for such a long period of time. So thank you. Thank you for all you've done. Pleasure. And, and I'll continue to continue to support a place that's been so supportive and important to me. Well, Mill, thank, thanks so much for taking the time. I think I'm going to have to take you up on your advice and interview your daughter next. I think that's... There, uh, there you go. Well, she's just, yeah. just doing fabulous work out she's at John Hopkins. Doing, and it's, doing great work. It's exciting. I, I thought she would never get philanthropy, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and until I, she was on a gurney and about to give a, give a kidney away. And I said, oh, my goodness. She said, Dad, I'm not doing this out of fear. I'm doing this out of love. And uh, uh, whew, what a remarkable gesture. And I said, I think she's got it. I, I, another uh, remarkable graduate, a remarkable person. Uh, what, a, what a career. Well, Milt, I hope you have a fabulous weekend. And uh, th- thank you for being on. I, I feel bad now. You were talking about all the cold calls you were getting by your uh, professors. And here you are on one more cold call where I'm cross-examining you for one last time. That's, but <laughs> I appreciate right. you making the time. I hope it's not a last time, sir. <laughs> no, exactly. No, no. Well, we'll see how the podcast goes. I, uh, okay, great. Uh, you, let let me, me know what it's posted or what it's potting or whatever it's doing. And thanks to our listeners for joining us too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Mauer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a thousand alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is one more cold call an IU Mauer School of Law alumni podcast.